0: Quarantine, No One Can Hear You podcast. And around here, we like to keep it 100. (laughs) It's the pod people celebrating 100 big deep episodes. (laughs) I'm Matisse Van Rossum, and I'm the last surviving member of this podcast. Signing on. I'm
1: George Alien, and I'm here to do
2: some podcasting. Ben, for short. I'm Cleveland Mosier, and uh, make sure to call your mother. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, is it because the computer's named Mother? Yeah.
0: okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Took me a second. It's a deep cut. Well, we did it. We got all the way to 100 episodes, and some of you might be thinking, but Matisse, what about those mini-pods that became the format for the regular show? What about those? Didn't you really hit 100 episodes about 25 episodes ago? And to you I say, listen here, buckaroo. Do you think I'm going to go in and renumber all of these things? Absolutely not. So this is our 100th episode. Yeah,
1: shut up, nerds. Shut up, nerds.
0: (laughs) You think you can count things? (laughs) You think this is a podcast where we count numbers? It's not a math cast. No, this is a horror movie podcast, not a
2: cast for fucking calculus. Horror movies notoriously don't care about numbers.
0: That's right. For our 100th episode, we decided to do something very special. We decided to watch Alien, the 1979 (laughs) classic by Ridley Scott... Written by Dan O'Bannon and starring a whole bunch of very good actors, such as Sigourney Weaver, Tom Skerritt, John Hurt, Veronica Cartwright, Harry Dean Stanton, Ian Holm, Yafit Kodo, and Balaji Badejo. And a great cat. And a great cat. One of the <laughs> finest cats in cinema history. <laughs> My personal favorite cinema cat. Yeah. Also,
1: art by... H.R. Geiger
0: and uh Morbius uh Mobius, Mobius drinking Mobius. A mor- <laughs> Morbius, <laughs> Morbius <laughs> drinking, drinking a forty in a death, death basket.
2: basket. Good old Eric Andre deep cut there.
0: Well this uh this episode is off to a great start. Can you tell we've been doing this uh, at least a hundred times? Yeah.
2: Clearly, we are experienced professionals who know exactly what we're doing and aren't afraid to go. Uh, or are afraid to go off the rails? Because I was being sarcastic.
0: Yes. Well, uh, this is maybe the complete opposite end of the spectrum from last week's pick, "The Evil Within." <laughs> yeah. Two wow.
1: Very different sorts of masterpieces.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, Alien is probably my favorite movie of all time if you put a gun to my head and made me pick just one. So I've been wanting to cover this one on the show for a really, really long time. Last year was its 40th anniversary. This movie came out 41 years
2: ago. Hard to believe because I think it holds up incredibly well. It's funny you mentioned this is your favorite of all time because I'd probably say that Blade Runner is mine. So, oh, both Ridley, Ridley Scott
1: films, yeah. Ah, oh, that's funny. My, my favorite film is <laughs> Gladiator. Gladiator. Yeah, yeah Gladiator. Gladiator. Right. I, was I mean, to think think a, a really pick. bad Ridley oh, Scott movie. Yeah, but Gladiator's I couldn't think fun. of one. Yeah, yeah Robin Hood
2: would be my my go-to bad one. Like the that Robin Hood movie was not enjoyable.
0: Yeah, Ridley Scott has made some movies. He has. I would argue that this is his magnum opus. I guess you would argue
2: differently, Cleveland, for Blade Runner. Blade Runner is great too. You could you could likely say the same about like Gladiator or like Black Hawk Down. Like he just each one is like encompasses such a wildly different genre for the most part. I mean, this crossover with Alien and Blade Runner, of course, but his other films and works are you know are all over the damn place. It's well, true,
0: yeah. He has not been uh, tied down to any specific genre over no, his career at all.
1: The the funny thing about Blade Runner did just go on a minor sidetrack here is sure. I mean, it really depends on which of often. the the 15 cuts of
2: Blade Runner we're talking about whether yeah, it's a masterpiece or not mm-hmm. this is this is very true whichever cut I think it was the the theater cut that has narration in it uh not that one
0: yeah definitely not, not that. that one
2: <laughs> the ambiguous one where there's no narration is easily the I think better the pick.
0: answer is the most recent cut the like director's director's cut or there, whatever. Yeah, the came that was Seventh director's cut. Yeah, the seventh yeah. director's well, cut. Unlike
1: Blade Runner, Alien is a very singular vision in that like there we did see the director's cut, but I
0: couldn't tell the difference. I couldn't
1: tell the difference and honestly between the two I think the director's cut is actually just a minute shorter.
0: I was looking for it the whole time, and I couldn't figure out what they cut. Like, it's been a while since I've seen Alien last, but I've seen it so many times, like... It felt like it had everything in it. I don't know. Like, the production of Alien is one of the most fascinating parts of it to me, because it was really born out of the failure of Dune, Alejandro Jodorowsky's Dune, and all of the people that he was bringing together, like uh, H.R. Giger and Dan O'Bannon and Mobius, were all, like, working together. And when the production of Dune fell apart, and they realized that it would never get made— they said, hey, let's collaborate on something else. And that something else was Alien. I'm glad that we got something out of that. Dune is one of the
1: greatest stories of, like, a fizzled project where so many huge names and people were working on it and it just kind of fizzled out. But we ended up getting this, and, uh, you know, it really, at its core, it starts with Dan O'Bannon's excellent, excellent script, in my opinion. Yes, I agree. Um it's near perfect in its structure and execution, obviously, but, you know, it, you take a great script and really elevate it to something beyond.
0: It's, it's a very lean script, but also very slow. It's not fast-paced by any means, but I wouldn't cut anything. Every scene feels relevant.
2: <laughs> Funny you mention that uh, you wouldn't cut anything, uh, because that's actually almost entirely what Scott did with the director's cut. Um, I just looked it up, and uh, it is indeed a minute shorter than the original version. Uh, A lot of the the intro shots are actually shortened to get to the action faster, which I kind of disagree with Uh, i wouldn't want to do that Uh, also i I didn't think it was
0: i think it was noticeable honestly the director's cut is very close to the theatrical cut so i mean i think that just goes to show that they got it fucking right the first time and it's
1: so funny because usually you see director's cuts that are x amount minutes longer Longer, you know where this one it's already an excellent film so if anything he just tightened up some elements which It's not a knock on the original by any means uh, because the original is great.
0: Well, I mean, this era of horror films, too, is uh, like especially like studio horror films was really the golden age as far as I'm concerned, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers came out a year before this. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out like
2: four, or five years before this. They're willing to give like new directors budget and boy, howdy, did not show because like Scott had done very little like and before like, this film and
0: Carte Blanche to like do what they wanted to do with like very little studio interference and letting them go crazier, darker, gorier directions. Like for for the time, like this movie was unprecedented in the stuff that it was doing. Like it changed the culture of horror forever as far as i'm concerned oh yeah it's very
1: much a creature feature absolutely um you know in the same vein as something like a jaws but what i find really interesting is where jaws reveals the shark at the very end basically. This movie shows us the alien within the first hour, well, first the, half of the movie.
0: It shows us parts of it that it wants us to see. I think that the treatment of how they show the alien in this movie is one of its strong suits, because, I mean, maybe the, the worst-looking effect in the movie is, like, at the very end when the the action figure on a string gets, like, blown out into space. Yeah. Uh, um, and I think that, like, they did what they needed to do to like hide the rubberiness of the alien suit you can see you can see, almost you can see, never a bit, see the
2: whole but... alien at any given time you never see its whole body standing there you you do all the time in the second one but yeah. in the first one there's rarely a shot you get it emerging from the coils like at the end uh like when it's been hibernating uh, you get it, like, when it's on the chains, like, unwrapping and coming down. But even then, like, like the lower half of its body is often out of the shot, or in the tunnels. Like, it's, it's still in the shadows there. You only get, like, its hands and head really coming out. And-
0: yeah, whenever they show it, the lighting is extremely dark. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what you're seeing is silhouette and form and, like, texture. I, I think that the texture of the creature is very important to uh, to giving you more ideas about what it is, because it's so fucking slimy. Honestly, for cinematography purposes, that works great because, like, if something's wet and slimy then, like, the light reflects off of it in really nice ways, and when you have really dynamic, dark, like, kind of noir lighting, uh, it just makes it... ooh. So
1: it's much- so tactile. Yes. yes.
0: Yeah, uh I mean just in general that's everything in this movie like the the production design is fucking insane. Top tier. The I number mean, the,
2: the ultimate, the prime standard.
0: The number of models and miniatures and, and full scale and full sets. sets and props and stuff that they built like, is. Let's talk
2: about how many old planes they took apart to make those sets. Every component and panel on the wall was like meticulously built by the crew. They scavenged all manner of World War II to present day like jet engines and turbines and stuff to and like took them apart and like reassembled them into other objects like to to match on the ship and it's just so cool it's to scale kit bashing essentially like what yeah. you what you get where like they took like battleship parts for like models to to make the death star and you know other or the the ship in this film the which well, yeah, they
0: did plenty of in this uh, as well. yeah there's a lot kit of bashing. kit bashing
2: for for the Nostromo as well god I love it it's I, it might be like my just one of my all-time favorite film aesthetics kit bashing like Actual set ships, when they look that good, they're just unbeatable. And it is just such a fine line, I think, when it comes to practical effects for for either, like, people in suits or spaceships. Uh, it is such a fine line between it's a spray bottle, you know, it, like the, the Dalek is, is just a trash can, or it is real. It, it is actually something you can reach out and grab. Um, and it, it's such a tightrope walk with with practicals in a way that, like, CG isn't necessarily you know in the same.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about what the aesthetic of this movie did for I think science fiction as a genre because if you look at sci-fi up till this point or at least this era, it's all very clean, futuristic, pristine, like cr- like smooth, reflective chrome, sterile white spaces, you know, it's the future. Then in this movie it's like these people are like towing like mined material back to earth the sh- it's it's a commercial freighter like it's grungy yeah
1: and uh, space capitalism w- one of the yeah. reasons i think it's so timeless is because you know you have all the stated technology not because it's set in the past but because you know that technology is reliable and and easy
2: sturdy to do and cheap because and, yeah. and the the company's cutting costs and that that's made quite clear. Like they're using like '80s computers and stuff, not because this film was shot in the '80s, but because they want to cut every dime possible to make that ship run
0: right. And I mean, it's a it's a like I said, it's a commercial freighter. It's not meant to look good and be shiny and use the most expensive technology. What they need is rugged and reliable and cheap. So like the computers do look old and outdated and everything is kind of dirty and oil stained and grimy and like as and you know you saw you saw some of that stuff like in in Star Wars a couple of years before this <gasps> but even so you know Star Wars is more fantasy than sci-fi and it even of course bills itself as being a long time ago in a galaxy far far away you know so it's not i don't really consider star wars science fiction but this is like that was not really the aesthetic of science fiction before this and just look at how many fucking movies and video games and everything have taken that sort of, like, grimy sci-fi aesthetic.
1: Yeah, I feel well, like in recent times, we've kind of gone back towards the... The more the sleek, pristine. ...clean stuff, you know, only getting flashes of you know, the, the grimier side of stuff with stuff like underwater, for example. Yeah.
0: yeah, we talked like we talked about that on Underwater. They their production design was heavily inspired by this movie.
2: Yeah, I think the the closest comparison this film has to anything predating it would be um just as media. I I, I can't even like I don't it's it's hard to grasp at film even, but first pick would be HG Well's War of the Worlds. Because War of the Worlds is also very like grimy and dark. Uh, a, a great portion of it takes place in a basement yeah um, you know, as uh our protagonist is trying to evade the aliens
0: right, but um, it's taking it's taking place during an alien invasion of Earth. It's like in the present for when it's written, whereas with something like this, it's in the future.
2: oh yeah, but like uh just just that just that sense of like grime and like f- this biological fear, yeah, uh yeah, you know, this this lovecraftian sort of quality of the unknown. The horror of of Alien is uh, only partially technological. Uh, the the majority of the horror uh, extends from biology. Like this is a biological horror film. Yeah. So much of science fiction is focused on the technological. Uh, so very often it is the the Vern like submarines and spaceships and rockets and well those technology elements. has a lot
0: of horrifying implications. Right. But this is, like, it, it uses a, a more technological or, or futuristic setting as its backdrop. But, yeah, the horror is, does not come from the, the, the science. Right,
2: and in that case, uh, this film, I wouldn't want to compare it too closely to Star Wars in that same regard. Because this this film is still, I think, well-qualified as science fiction and yeah. not sci-fi fantasy. Even though it is a horror film, like, Biology is is really, I think, the big word of the day, and that's what keeps this film scientific. There's still plenty of scientific dialogue, totally, um, especially with uh, Ash, with Ash uh, discussing the, Bilbo the nature Baggins, of the creature. Ian Holm, <laughs> that's right, Monk. No, that's no, Tony Shalhoub.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> you got to give me they look similar. I, I mean, I, they're kind, they're of. K- uh... kind of. I guess I never really heard any, like, Detective uh, Bilbo jokes, so that would be why, because yeah. they're not the same person. Because they're not the same person. Ian <laughs> yeah.
0: Holm and Tony Shalhoub are not the same, and I'm pretty sure Ian Holm is, like... At least twenty Much year, older, at yes. least twenty to thirty years older than Tony Shalhoub. Um, <laughs> it checks out. Yeah, the, 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 cry, the chronology wasn't
2: working there for me, so that makes good sense.
1: Well, you know, like we we've been talking about science fiction versus science fantasy, but really, this is a a message movie, a very prescient one,
0: all about the dangers of breaking social isolation, of breaking quarantine. Yeah, yeah, yeah
2: very specifically like quarantine.
0: Yeah, man. Like Ripley is is uh, really the voice of reason for so much of this movie. Ma- I mean, I guess that's why she's the main character, huh? <laughs> but, uh, but like, yeah, when they when they come back with uh, John Hurt and the alien on his face, she's like, "No, I'm not letting you back in." It's that's it's literally against the law. It's breaking quarantine. You got to leave him out there. And like, no matter how much uh, Captain Dallas like rages at her, she doesn't. And then, of course ash lets them in because ash has ulterior motives i i know i was kind of i kind of ragged on you at the beginning cleveland because <laughs> you said that the there was foreshadowing that ash was an android because he but i'm right but math, i'm right and you know it because he did math fast in his head i know i don't think you're right but <laughs> i i do think that Your point stands that, like, the way that they subtly foreshadow Ash's turn or his ulterior motives is handled really well when you know how to look for it. Just like there's so many times— Yeah, second viewing, it's it's delightful or fifth viewing. I mean, yeah, bazillionth viewing, but there's so many times where it'll just be like a reaction shot that you wouldn't think anything of if you weren't looking for it. Just, like, at specific moments, like, they cut to Ash, and it's just, like, the look is, like, there's something else going on in his head. And I love the way that that is handled. And just, like, his reveal as, as the android is is handled so spectacularly.
2: Oh, yes. And uh, as, as I said during the film, Ridley Scott really has a thing for, like, twitching, barfing robots. Yeah. He loves that aesthetic. I don't know what, what it is about it, but I love it too. So it's it's quite nice. The, uh, One of
1: the things I really appreciate about Ash too is uh he's more expressive than you would normally see androids and robots. Right. You know, you compare the uh Ash's portrayal to like davids and prometheus or even or
0: even bishops in aliens it's just
1: night and day you know like there's a sense of surprise to it because you don't expect it
0: i mean it's an it's a remarkable surprise if you don't know what's coming going into it because there's absolutely nothing to suggest anything like that throughout the rest of the movie like that's such a shocking uh like weird moment and like that's another thing that like the science fiction aspect of it does really well is that in the future, you have carte blanche to use androids and artificial life forms and stuff like that. but that doesn't mean that it can't be a surprise when the audience isn't looking for it, you know mm-hmm. and just the way that that's handled in the scene when Ripley you know goes in and talks to mother, and sees that the priority of the mission all along was to get the the organism on board and take it back uh, to the company. And, you know, Ash kind of tries to kill her. And, like, just the way that starts, that close-up shot of his face and, like, that little droplet of white, like, trickles down his forehead and it looks like he's sweating milk. Like, if you don't know what's coming from that, like, that is
2: just so unsettling and weird it's just perfectly wrong like the the wrongness of like the him like spewing like the milk you know like that that weird substance is like that's your first legitimate indicator that he's not human that something is is off with him right and, and you would up till now you're you're you've and you only been on like, the impression that alien is like that biological alien is is what is going on well and that's him.
0: that's what you might think too before you know he gets his head knocked off and you see that he's an android is like you see him spewing this white milk and like okay the alien got to him it has some other powers that we don't that we didn't know of. Which is
2: the game of the whole movie, is what can Alien do? What
0: can it do? Because it changes forms so many times Mm -hmm. that it's so unknown and alien (laughs) the alien is
2: alien right and like so many uh escape films and other horror films uh or even action adventure films you know of the time and up till present uh tend to focus on like escape the environment you know escape the evil castle escape the the cube escape whatever it is uh and it's about understanding what the how to get out of the environment but here it's understanding, like, what is hunting you down. And how to get
0: it out of the environment because there's nowhere for you mm-hmm. to go because you're in the middle of space.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's cool because the our, our protagonists are quite comfortable and at home on this strange spaceship. But the audience isn't. The viewer is not. So we have this doubled sense of discomfort and sort of floating atmosphere because we're we're kind of stuck in this place that we don't understand and we're being hunted by something we don't understand. But fortunately, at least the the characters – feel comfortable there they yeah. you know that is it is their home Uh,
0: it's their norm
2: going back to ash also his uh nature uh is is alien as well it still carries on the core themes of the film yeah uh he is a non-biological alien he's a he's a synthetic based life form instead still non-human uh and it plays at those same themes that were largely popularized by hollywood and cinema well before then there are plenty of uh tropey examples of uh, like serial sci-fi uh before now that pulled from the secret android sort of thing because it's, oh, they're, they're secretly a communist. It's that same principle. It's the Invasion it, of the Body b- Exactly, written all over Invasion. And uh, it's so gratifying to see that done realistically and terrifyingly and horrifyingly legitimately so and not in this in a 50s serial sense it's it's just so gratifying
0: you bring up a good point that i think the title alien does not refer to the word as a noun it's as an adjective it's more than just the alien creature it is about what makes something alien and that applies to, like you said, not only the Xenomorph, but also Ash. Then you were going to say something. Yeah,
1: well, another point you made that I really want to unpack a little bit is you were talking about the difference in familiarity between the characters and the audience. And I actually disagree a little bit, only in that... I think Ridley Scott does, and the production design team as a whole does such an excellent job of kind of making a sort of spatial map of the ship so well in how they go from scene to scene and from sequence to sequence that you can really map out the ship in your head and it feels like a very physical location.
2: It's not like the it's, Overlook. It's yet. very reminiscent to World War II and post-war submarine films. In that respect, like the, the tiny portholes, they usually have to step over a bulkhead to enter a room, and it does a wonderful job of, of help, helping to set that up. Uh, I think any good science fiction ship tends to pull from submarine films because uh, it's such a tangible like point of relation and submarines are a wonderful like real life example of a of a machine that is in a a, a foreign place uh that has like that has all these set individual the, that has rooms to keep the
0: outside out in yes. order for the in what is inside to survive
2: mm-hmm. yeah because the similar things happen when you puncture the hole
0: I think you bring up a good point, Ben, that you do have a pretty good spatial awareness of, like, where things are roughly laid out in the ship.
2: They use the acid to set that up wonderfully. Yes, oh, yeah, I that agree. Is, that
0: is a really good example. But I do think that—I don't know if I would ever say that I feel comfortable on the Nostromo. No, I think it's sure, designed to yeah, feel yeah, yeah, discomfortable. Yeah. Be- I mean, it's because, like, it is so bizarre and kind of claustrophobic, and the crew members are at home there because that's their norm. And I think that sort of the uncanniness of the environment is part of what makes the film so tense even before the alien even gets on board the ship. Like, I think that from the opening credits of the movie, like, the pervading sense is dread, I don't think that ever once lets up in the film. I never feel comfortable.
2: There is, there is one moment, and it is, it, is, it is a moment that sets me up for this point nicely, and that is the dinner. Uh, and I, I never thought about it this way before until we watched it tonight, but one of the key things that makes that scene so nauseating is the perversion of the meal. It is such a socially holy event for, like, everyone to get together and have a shared meal, like The Last Supper— uh, there's all sorts of religious iconography of of like people sitting down to have like a ceremony, a meal together. You know, ceremony just in the traditional sense of just you do this every day, and they all, the crew all value it as that. They do see it like with a with a degree of sacrament, like it is. Well, um, I think they, like they, capitalistically, like they make a point of being like, I'm buying this this dinner tonight. Like it's not good food, but like it's food. And I'm well, it's you know,
0: it's because they're relieved because everything seems to be OK for yes. a moment because the face hugger has fallen off of John Hurt and it has died and he seems to be OK and everything seems hunky dory. So they have
2: this one moment to like, it was, it hold was on so to something traditional.
0: They were so scared and tense before this, and they think, okay, cool, we're about to get into our cryo chambers, and and when we wake up, we'll be back at Earth, everything's cool, crisis averted, whew, and then it gets so much worse mm-hmm. immediately.
2: Immediately, like in that same scene, there there is no opportunity for downtime, the crew doesn't go, like, they don't even have a chance to head back to their bunks or, like, allow you to process that you're having a good moment before the good moment is gone.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's one of the most famous scenes in film history and one of the probably most famous on-set production stories in film history as uh, Ridley Scott and Dan O'Bannon did not tell the cast, except for John Hurt, what was going to happen during that scene. I think in the script, all it says is the creature emerged I believe. And so Veronica Cartwright's screams during that scene when his chest explodes and sprays blood everywhere. And all of the cast reactions were supposedly legitimate because they did not know that that was going to happen. They did not know that the creature was going to emerge from John Hurt. It's very much in the same vein as like Friedkin shooting
1: a gun behind A character's head right before calling action. Yeah, you know, on The but... Exorcist,
0: or spraying the the pea soup into into the priest's face, like he wasn't expecting that. Yeah, like those authentic reactions. With, <laughs> with William Friedkin, it seems a little bit more, uh, <laughs> a little bit crueler. Yeah. Like firing a gun behind somebody's <laughs> head is pretty extreme. Oh, and of course, one of the best examples
2: too is like them dropping in Die Hard, uh them them dropping Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman uh early to get that genuine surprise reaction in his fall in Die Hard. Like there there's some great moments of, of directors like pulling one over their uh uh over the cast um in some cases, to too far a degree, too far. Uh, see our episode on The Shining. Um, <laughs> but uh, in this case,
0: I think it worked fucking masterfully. Like a huge part of what makes that scene, outside of like John Hurt's performance as he's dying, is just like everybody else's reaction—the what the fuck is happening? Look on everybody's face. You can't fake that. Well,
2: and also the blood was real. Was when, it like pig's blood? Uh, lambs they boiled it uh so like uh veronica cartwright like when she gets splashed with blood they're throwing buckets of blood on them and it's it's animal blood they did get animal materials for the the violence in this movie like this is this is old hollywood
0: when they're doing the autopsy on the dead face hugger and you see like the bot like its bottom part that
2: was it's like a horseshoe crab and yeah stuff. it's
0: you can tell it's real and lamb. it's real meat like it's yeah. it's fleshy like those effects look so fucking good well it's because they went to the butcher shop and played lego
2: like it's it's fucked up
0: (laughs) that's why effects like that hold up so well after 40 fucking years this time when we were watching this movie i like i just kept thinking to myself i can't believe this movie is 40 years
2: old no name me a recent sci-fi film where the ship like looks that good on the inside I dare you. Underwater. I fucking dare you. <laughs> like, uh, like, un- under, mm, I mean, I don't know, like, we're running down, like, the tiled hallways and stuff in Underwater. It's not the same. I know you're being sarcastic, and I, and I hate you, but, like, <laughs> I, it's, hard, it's hard to not take the bait, Ben. God damn it.
0: I mean, just another example of, like, incredible set design in this, and um, probably my favorite set in the movie is the, the alien spaceship on the planet surface. Oh, yeah. Uh, Do you, did you know, uh... Prometheus I, nonsense, a side i like <laughs> as much as I, I do like prometheus and i love alien i love bits. like it's it's always hard for me to not think about alien as like a standalone self-contained film because i don't know it almost feels more sacred to me that way so i try to <laughs> like i try to not think about alien in context of any of the other sequels or spinoffs i
2: think alien it's i don't know why I mean, we gonna unpack why like it's easier for me to do that with Even Alien to Aliens and Alien 3 and AVP and all of those, (laughs) even though I I have such a high regard for Alien, I I have so little of an issue with the other iterations. Yeah. That's so often not the case with me.
1: uh, Yeah, what's interesting about the progression of the series as a whole is much like something like Mission Impossible. They bring on a different big director to do each one. Yeah. You know, and I think... Mission Impossible has been more consistent with the quality of those sequels. But Alien, you know, you get interesting results from that. Uh,
0: Interesting is a good word.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, you get very unique visions.
0: Each one is kind of a different genre of film as well. So it's easier, I think it's easier to separate them.
1: Yeah, and they're all fairly self-contained. You know, they have linking... Bits to them, you know, Wayland Utami or Sigourney Weaver, right? Or, of course, the alien, the the alien, yeah. But I think they all work on their own to the point where you could probably watch any of them by themselves without much context and get a lot of out of it, yeah.
0: Yeah. I think so. Cleveland, you sound like you had more thoughts on the space jockey's ship.
2: Oh, thousands. Um, it's one of my favorite pieces of imagery, like it it is the most iconically just unknown and strange use it's of aliens. forms. No one's done it better. Like everyone, everyone's always aping Giger. Like how, how do you top that? These like strange, like, like psychosexual images, like uh, even the biological the strange,
0: looking machinery,
2: right? Like even the space jockeys, uh, like giant cannon, you know, looks phallic. It, it's, it's all so, so odd. And, and to, to leave it at that, to not explain like what the strange space cannon thing does, to just show us this like this odd image of like this like weird like germination machine, like like what the fuck does this do? And and to just leave us with that, you know, know that like these aliens that were clearly trying to achieve some sort of some form of like astral hubris, right? Yeah. Like they're literally trying to like fuck the stars with this strange like dick machine. And they got got by the alien. Right, like the, something burst out of its chest. That's yeah. sitting on this this device. I mean, and
0: the alien itself is like the ultimate physical personification of like sexual violence. Right. like its whole its whole life cycle is about like penetrating and violating and laying eggs. And its head looks like a big dick. And like it's all it's it's all thanks to Giger. It, like, oh yeah, like, I mean he that, was
2: he was a sick because the script weird was inspired by his art in that respect yeah like well, the, his his designs came first for yeah. uh like the I necronom mean, the script, four is the painting <laughs> yeah the the script formed around the same time and scott got him went out to to find him for for that well no stuff. because but, like, he was, they part, brought of the, in those he was part of the dune to, crew to yeah he was yes. part of the
0: dune crew so he was he had been collaborating with dan o'bannon mm-hmm. so dan o'bannon insisted that he come along when they got
2: but interestingly enough uh they were actually under time and budget on the alien ship fun fact i i, I see you like shaking your head like like who-, who could who could give a shit right but i, and I think lo- yeah, that's looks part amazing. of it well part of what i think makes it look so good is is that fact because they were legitimately working with what they had to do that. Now, that being said, what they had was like in the mill range, you know, like it was pretty good, yeah. Like, but um, they were under what they were shooting for. A lot of what makes the alien ships so fascinating, I think, is that so much of it is obscured by fog. They used they used uh, a lot of camera tricks. Um, that they weren't planning on having to use to to give us, like, those those sequences. And the mystery of it is so much cooler and more terrifying. It's just like
0: the Jaws comparison you made earlier, Ben. Like, famously, that shark, like we even talked about in our episode, yes. was fucking breaking down all the time, so they had to show way less of it than they intended because they didn't want to show off how fucking dog shit that the machine was. And the effect of that is it makes the shark scarier. Yes. And... I think that so many times you see that ingenuity come from like unideal situations like, well, we got to make do with what we fucking have. And a lot of the time it's leave more up to the audience's imagination and just like the little tricks they used, like in all of the wide shots of them, you know, in the spacesuits. That was like Ridley Scott's kids, I think. Yeah, it was in in spacesuits to make everything look bigger. So it's like just little fucking tricks like that. Like you take a set that is smaller and then you put child actors in spacesuits and all of a sudden it looks enormous.
2: It's true also, uh, especially by comparison, the Nostromo we have well enough mapped out in our headspace, right? Like you can track the whole thing because they had a lot more time and budget on the Nostromo. Whereas the crash site is much more nebulously laid out. We don't really know where on the ship John Hurt comes across the eggs or where the space jockey is in relation to the entrance, When after they enter, how long they've been down that narrow hallway. None of those things really piece together perfectly. There's a lot of fog in between because it's a large object as they approach it, but we don't really see – any direct, you know, links on the inside, whereas in Prometheus, we 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 get the whole thing mapped.
0: Well, out. I mean, that's the thing is like Prometheus felt the need to explain all of the stuff that didn't need explaining from Alien, yes. and Prometheus is fun. It's got some oh, fun yeah. parts. I, like I,
2: I, I liked know. having it explained to me, whether it needed sure. to be or not. Like I thought but it was it's fun. Like getting it.
0: once once again, like that's part of the reason why I look at this movie as like self contained, because the implications of all of this stuff are so much cooler and scarier. Yes. The idea that like the space jockey is like a weird like biological mechanical thing that it's like sort of fused with the ship. The ship is very biological. Did the eggs that they find like were they transporting them? Did they find those on this planet? Like what was happening here? And then for Prometheus to be like it- it's not actually its body. It's just it's just a spacesuit and a helmet it looks like Uh, a big white play-doh action figure man underneath you know (laughs) it's like just deflate so much of that like really cool like spooky ambiguity i
2: can i can see in writing like on paper how it could be scarier because they look like us but not practically It, it doesn't no i i agree the the weird like elephantine like like face is is so cool like the the weird almost gas mask that looks like a spine you know like it's it's so cool yeah and and like its
0: chest is broken open and it looks like ribs but nope turns out that's just a spacesuit too later (laughs) we're not here to talk about prometheus but i think
1: looking at the differences between the two is quite interesting because uh i think you made a really good point earlier that while the xenomorph and its different forms are shown fairly early in the movie it's shown in parts you know and I think a lot of that is obviously because of limitations of the budget. But I also think it leaves quite a bit up to the imagination. Totally. And I think while we see the full xenomorph later on in, you know, like all of the sequels and Aliens, and it's done really well in, you know, Aliens, for example, I think you get more mileage out of less in this movie just because of what they don't show
0: and especially just because like having you have to think about when this came out there was nothing like this before like the the xenomorph has been so ingrained in pop culture and horror culture for as long as we've been alive you know we've always been aware of it And just to, like, try to get in the mind of somebody who is seeing this in theaters for the first time. My mom was one of those people. She told me about it and how, like, weird and scary the experience was. But, like, when you don't know what the xenomorph is and what it looks like, like, how well it's hidden is terrifying, I think. Just, like, what is this disgusting creature that is so horrifyingly, like killing these people for what reason you know
2: and the reason is it knows nothing else it can't be reasoned with it's it can't be bargained organism. with <laughs> etc the rest of the terminator quote that i've forgotten
0: like yafit koto says to ash you sound like you <laughs> admire it i do i i admire its purity it, yeah yeah Nah, fuck, that scene is so good. Ian Holm is great, man. He's an underrated actor, I think. I wish he was in more big stuff. Yeah. But he was a good Bilbo. Yeah. He was a great, he's he an sure even was. better monk. God damn it. Show, show Ian Holm some goddamn respect. <laughs> If we were going to talk about Tony Shlub, we'd be talking about Spy Kids. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> or the
2: masterpiece Pain and Gain. <laughs> <laughs> truly, truly a work of genius. It's so hard to, to break into this film for me because I just I can't stop just gushing over it.
0: I don't have any problems with it. Yeah, it's, there's nothing to
2: break apart with this movie. Like, yeah, the, just, at the end, the so alien looks a little action figure-y when it gets uh, blasted. And that's about it. It's got a cool cat in it. What's not to love? One thing that I want to unpack a little bit
1: is the score. Um, oh yeah, yeah, done by Howard Shore, I believe. No, um,
0: Jerry Goldsmith. I
1: think Jerry Goldsmith. Oh, Goldsmith. Yeah. Um, um,
0: it's very. It's a very
1: surprisingly traditional score. It is. Um, very orchestral.
0: I've rarely ever, like, notice it in the movie except at, like, the very beginning. The piece that, like, when the ship is waking up and, like, everything's coming on, that kind of, like, light but mysterious tune. It's, like, the only part I of the score yeah. that, like, everything else just feels, it just, like enhances it so well that it just becomes a part of the whole it doesn't ever it doesn't ever really stand out to me mm-hmm.
2: goldsmith also known for uh planet of the apes chinatown gremlins i kind of love that i'm just now i'm just imagining this film with the gremlins score. i can see
0: that though <laughs> uh,
2: Patton, uh etc cetera, etc cetera. many great masterpieces
1: well um, in my opinion like if i were to say any minor negatives and this is just a nitpick at this point is i feel like the score is slightly dated i mean obviously it's a product of its time and on top of that i i think it doesn't become too much of an issue for me because it is so minimally used yeah the only noticeable sequence where it like stands out for me is uh when the acid is coming through the floors and you get like a weird like orchestral string section
0: it is very it is very like 70s studio movie score <laughs> yeah, na, na, yeah.
2: Na, na, na. you know sort of stuff yeah i love it in the opener though
0: yeah, the beginning like, just, I, I like, really like the music. Classical
2: space man, that's such a good feel. It just it's impossible to to picture it without hearing like heady synths. It's just it's so nice to get strings in space. Like I just I love I love that aesthetic, peering out across the cosmos and just hearing like those those orchestral movements. Like it, it's it's quite gratifying and to make space feel like so traditional.
0: Ben, to your point, though, when bringing up the score, it's also good to talk about the times when there is a lack of score. Yes. Because I think that the uses of uh, silence in this movie are pretty strong. Or not even just, like, silence, but uh, just, like, ambient sound. Like, I I think of when, uh, at the end, when she's set the uh, the ship to self-destruct and she's trying to get to the escape pod and we have her like running through the corridors of the Nostromo like with the cat and the flamethrower and everything steaming and like the sirens are blaring and the lights are flashing and you don't know where the fucking alien is and it could be around any every corner that is a really great example of not using a score. My other favorite part is when she's in the escape pod at the end and is putting on the is like silently putting on the spacesuit to prepare to blow the alien out and you get all these shots of it like probably the most like slow like close up shots we have of the alien like at that point and it's all just like set to silence and her breathing. So even though you have like all of these really gross close-ups of this nightmarish beast, you're just hearing her breath and in well, your like exactly what she's hearing like silence and her breath in her ears.
2: It's the same with the engine room. It's the same with yeah. them looking for the face. The hugger. clinking
0: chains. The clinking in the chains. Because room. because oh here's
2: here's the thing, right? Jaws, uh, Freddy, Jason, etc. Like any iconic like horror monster gets a theme, right? What is the aliens theme? Silence. The rest of the film, even when there is no music, the sound design usually has some sort of accompaniment: with the hum of the engine, the clicking computers,
0: ambient noise, conversation, there's a lot of clinking and clacking, talking over each other. It feels very natural, right?
2: There's there's always there's always some sort of background, except for when the alien has made its presence known. That is when there is silence. Space, Especially
1: no so in this movie. I think in Aliens, I feel like the motif of the aliens' clicking noise uh, almost is more
2: of a motif. Oh yeah, I mean they, everything about Aliens is loud by yes. comparison. Like, movie. like yes. the matter fact, the movie I think gets louder when the aliens are there. um There's lots of screaming and you know, there's all sorts of pandemonium, and they they represent chaos, a loud chaos. But in this one, like whenever it's it has actually made its appearance. Like it is it is silent. Um even even there's even a brief moment of silence before the chestburster appears. There's a moment where everyone kind of gathers around him and stops for a second. We 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 get a moment to to breathe and to sit in nothingness.
0: The one uh scene that is I that is very loud that I like how loud intense it is, it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, is when uh, Tom Skerritt is in the air ducts looking for the alien with the uh, the flamethrower. Like, everything about that scene, the way that's handled, is so fucking good. The illumination of just, like, the pilot light on the flamethrower, the cool, irising airlocks, uh, and, like, them opening and closing and the sounds they make, just this, like, labyrinthine space where the air ducts are above and below and all around, and, like, like not knowing where this creature that we haven't really quite we haven't gotten a great look uh, at what it looks like in this form yet since it killed Harry Dean Stanton and the beeping of the, the motion detector device and like Veronica Cartwright and Sigourney Weaver like screaming over the radio and then the sudden appearance of the alien and then just like cut it off just like cut to the next scene so fucking good everything about the way that is paced and like the tension is handled is is perfect i am not the biggest fan of jump scares because i think they're cheap horror but i think that that one in the air ducts is maybe the best jump scare in cinema history for me
2: it wasn't until i was watching the movie tonight that i i was able to finally put my finger on i think one of the key differences of what makes a good jump scare movie and what makes a a less good jump scare movie there are there are many there are many qualifiers the biggest thing that most films make the mistake of doing is not allowing for false starts there are many moments of build-up with no payoff in alien and the the lack of payoff isn't treated with a jump scare itself and a lot of horror films especially nowadays, love to still have a startle during those false starts. They still love... To have like something make you jump and be scared, and I think we get one of those, few with, of those with in, the cat. They um, do
0: like two um, or this. three with Jonesy in this. Um,
2: yeah, but uh, we're we're allowed as many moments of build up where where everyone is okay. Like the dead face hugger, e- even then, like it just slip off the the rafters, I suppose, and scare Sigourney. But after that, uh, I'm trying to think. There there are a couple of scenes where nothing happens. Or we're, we're led to believe that something is going to happen and nothing does.
0: Even in the air duct scene, like the, the jump scare does not follow the standard convention of the jump scare. It doesn't happen when you expect it to, because when you expect it to happen is when he's like at the crossroads of the air ducts and there's no say like they've, they've lost track of the of the thing and like the music stops and it's quiet for a second. The normal convention is to break that silence with the jump scare. But what they do instead is they have the motion tracker start beeping again and the alien is moving towards him and they're like yelling at him to get out of there. And it happens when he's coming down the ladder and turns to move down an air shaft and there's the alien. They set you up for a jump scare that doesn't happen make you feel like you might be okay, and then throw it in at a moment where you're really not expecting it.
1: It's a false footing,
0: really. Um, And I think that that's an effective way to do something startling that also still has actual narrative impact, because most of the time jump scares don't do that. It's literally just like to get your adrenaline pumping because it startles you. Well, that's Mm
1: -hmm. the biggest thing. I don't really have a problem with jump scares in themselves. They're just cheap. Unless they have motivation behind them,
2: and I had the luxury of watching this film fairly early on. This is one of the 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 earlier horror films I was exposed to. And uh, I was I was quite I'm I'm quite glad for that because I would I would hate to to have, to have watched this movie for the first time now because I think that so many films have aped the style of jump scare. The the false footing has been done, you know, to death uh, the false I don't starts know. as well. I mean, like, of
0: course, everything's been done before, but I would I would actually disagree and say that, like, the much more modern jump scare convention is that spooky buildup and then silence for a few seconds and then jump scare. Like that's every cheap jump scare in every boring, uninspired horror movie. That is what they are. And I think that if you want to make a jump scare effective, you have to truly catch the audience off guard. It's cheap if they're expecting it, because then they know it's coming, and then they still get startled regardless because it's a loud noise, and then they feel angry because it's like I saw it coming, but it still fucking got me. Like, that's not satisfying. Like, good jump scares is, are when you really don't see it coming, and it's like underpinning something that has stakes. Uh, a great <laughs> yeah.
2: attention. That has, yeah.
0: that has stakes, like the alien getting Captain
2: Dallas in the in the in the ventilation shaft that has stakes, mm-hmm. and apart from the ventilation shaft, uh, I think the majority of the other like alien death sequences the actual scares like as opposed to like the little startlements are treated more with like large reveals than they are yeah. like as jump scares like in the, the 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 engine room with the chains on the ceiling like yeah it's the alien it, revealing it its itself to some yeah like and it and walks up them. closely yeah. yeah and like you get to see the the mouth slowly open and uh i love the engineer's reaction to that as are the the men with the hat what is is he harry dean
0: stanton, yeah.
2: stanton i love i love his reaction to it he doesn't scream initially he screams like when it actually attacks but when he turns around and sees it he's just so revolted that he he has to comprehend it first and i love that like it, it's it's so believable and it was it's it's nice for him to not just turn around and Wah! you know like so much better just for us to get like a silent reaction on his face first he already knows it's too late
0: yeah that's another thing man like this movie has a fucking insanely good cast top to bottom John
2: Hurt I don't think I don't think and to kill off John Hurt so early yeah he's the first death well and here's the thing too like like John Hurt was like a notable star at that point like oh yeah and the I mean a lot of these people Sigourney Weaver was like the most unknown of course and and, and that's my point is like the, the film set you up to think that john hurts the hero he's the captain of the ship he's no he's john kind hurts of not like, the
0: captain um
2: oh is he not no um uh, tom scarrett's the captain yeah. he's Is he's is he, is he, he's second in command i think yeah i think he's, he's in a Lieutenant position of authority yeah. but he's not okay but he's like the authority no. he's like the the head of the expedition well, he's,
0: he's the first he's the first one we see waking up
2: yeah exactly you know, when, and, the,
0: when they all come up out of there
2: and I, I love that for several reasons. First, it's a cool bait-and-switch to make you think that John Hurt is going to be sort of the lead. Uh, but even then, John Hurt doesn't get a massive amount of screen time compared to anyone else. Everyone gets a pretty equal amount of screen time. Well, that's time the thing.
0: There's no clear protagonist until after John Hurt's death. And
2: I'll tell you what's so great about that.
0: And I would say even at that point, it still kind of feels like Tom Skerritt might be the protagonist. Because this
2: this breaks a trend that a lot of people feel is essential, um, particularly in horror, and that is to have a protagonist that you can really relate to so you can be afraid for. We do relate to Sigourney, but early on, we're not really given much of sigourney right we're not given much of like of ripley's character That's the
0: thing is i think all of the characters are relatable yes i think like that's it feels really like an ensemble piece at the beginning there's not a standout protagonist because they all like all of their motivations and character personalities are so well and easily established (laughs) that unbelievably And believably that they're all relatable, relatively likable people as well.
2: And I love this because it allows the viewer to just come to terms with the world, to become a part of the environment itself. It allows the viewer to place themselves there without immediately grounding them to a character first. This film is world oriented over character oriented. Even though it is like the the characterization and the the character motive is extremely good. It's prime object is to seat you in in this place.
0: Well the characters aren't complex. Like it's this isn't like a character drama or a character no. study. You know, like, like All the characters feel believable, and they all have their own little quirks and personality traits, and you feel like you know them pretty quickly, but this isn't a movie that's, like, about character development, you know? It's survival.
2: It's all placed with with intent, and it shows.
0: Intent and simplicity. The simpler the premise, the better, almost every
2: time. Uh, We haven't really talked about Ridley Scott as a person. Do we, Too much?
0: Need to? Do we need to? I, I don't know. He's, he strikes me as kind of an asshole and, you know, more pretentious than is worthy of him, but he's made some fucking good movies. Yeah. And well, some okay movies. Him
1: and his brother both came from the advertising world, which is uh, an interesting point just because of. The difference in conceptual framework for things like pacing and style is prevalent in both of their films, especially Tony Scott's films um, more than Ridley's. But I think there's, there's a sensibility to really emphasizing style in Ridley Scott's films.
0: Um, and production value and getting mileage out of what you have i think ridley scott is a really good director i don't know what i would say about him past that i think a lot of the success or failure of his films comes from like the other people working on it like they're the ones who really set set it over the over the top i think yeah
2: he he tends uh, from what i understand he drives a pretty like Tight, he runs a pretty tight ship. Like the the man works like like notoriously like hundred hour work weeks.
0: Oh, I'm sure he's, he's, he's de- a very he's intense dedicated man to his craft. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, well, like I guess I think he's a very good director. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It's just like you look at something like this, and you look at something like Prometheus. And yeah, Prometheus was 30 years later. But it's like you look at the difference in quality and like what was missing between Alien and Prometheus, and it's those other great minds like dan o'bannon and hr Giger and uh mobius and so it's like same director like same intense passionate <laughs> filmmaker yeah. and even trying helm. even
2: with him trying to pay homage to those people right like it, it prometheus, is it still... is
0: and prometheus is like a f- it's a fine film yeah. but it's, it's even not, a fun film at it's times it's not a it's nowhere close to alien
2: no it has moments but no, it's true. It's why now,
0: it's why I can place Alien as like my favorite film of all time without Ridley Scott being in probably even my top ten favorite directors.
2: I think it's also why I pretty strongly prefer like as an adaptation like Twenty Forty Nine to Blade Runner as opposed to like Prometheus to Alien because Denise Villeneuve, you know, uh, was able to take the reins. Than Ridley Scott. Um, Oh, and and also they still had Sid Mead for uh which made a big difference uh who did the the backdrops for blade runner and the new one as well as aliens but not alien so sid Mead worked on all those movies but it uh, doesn't doesn't seem like he worked on alien i couldn't find a credit for it
0: well anyway i mean there's there's so much more to be appreciated in this movie but i think we've hit all the biggest talking points and most interesting hallmarks uh so do you all want to rate this I mean, I don't even know if we have. To. I mean, it's probably it's probably pretty it's probably obvious. a unanimous yeah. five. Yeah, golden pod for me. Yeah, I mean, I kind of spoiled my own rating when I started out saying <laughs> it's my favorite film of all time. Yeah, but like you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's my
2: favorite film of all time. I will give it a three.
0: Yeah, it's it's a per- it's a perfect film, and it holds up remarkably well for being as old as it is. I hope and, I
2: can say the same thirty years from now.
0: Yeah, right, same, honestly.
2: Um, I hope I'm alive 30 years from now at this point. That's neither here nor there. Ben, did you
0: have a, a <laughs> an angry review that you wanted to read? Ooh, yes, oh, nice. I do. I was looking
2: on
1: Letterboxd for some contrarian takes on Alien,
0: and Who oh boy. We'll call this a slight spinoff of Metacritic Corner, which we haven't done in forever, but... <laughs> Okay, Here we go. So
1: a lot of these were uh, just short, atrocious. Basically, no CGI. <laughs> if whoa, It's not computer whoa. generated. It's not uh, real. That it has to be satire. That's got to be satire. This is
0: fake. Yeah. If yeah, it's not okay.
2: computer generated, it's not real. Wow, well, it's a good fake though. That's that's hilarious. They
0: got me first.
2: Yeah, yeah, boy, same. Well done. Well done.
1: Okay, sometimes if you hear something as a classic over and over, you feel obligated to give it a higher rating than what it deserves. It may have been a grandiose visual achievement in 1979, but with what felt like a full 10 minutes of dialogue and a full three minutes of the actual alien killing people, this movie is literally people slowly walking walking with corridors, and computers going bleep-bloop for an hour and 50 minutes. This was just a visual template for Blade Runner and nothing more.
0: I mean, I know this is an audio medium and the people listening can't see me, but I was making a slow jack-off motion that entire time, <laughs> because that that's how I
2: feel about that. <laughs> complaining about those crew moments and stuff like that that fucking baffles well me.
0: yeah saying that there's like, that it's 10 minutes of dialogue three minutes of alien and then an hour 50 minutes of walking around <laughs> corridors and bleeping computers is like did you watch the same movie i did clearly uh,
2: not the answer is they don't live in the same reality that you do they have
0: no they have no appreciation for atmosphere and
2: tension people are allowed to be wrong but
0: they're allowed to be wrong but i'm allowed to tell them about it too
2: yeah damn right those were fine anymore? No, most of them were just saying, oh, it's boring. Well, this week was brought to you by Ooh. Slime. Use it in your movies, it looks great. It, it Cut back to the part where Chief was talking about how it looks nice with all the lights bouncing off of it. Are we talking about like Nickelodeon slime? Uh, 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 squares and rectangles.
0: So what do you think would it would have looked like if they had put the Nickelodeon green slime on the alien instead of just a bunch of <laughs> like petroleum jelly? I mean, it would probably right? look like motherfucking swamp thing. You think it would have been do you think it would have been more or less scary?
2: <laughs> uh green goo alien uh are, that sounds pretty scary to me. I don't know. I mean the gooier
0: the scarier it's what I always say.
2: Oh, so you you must be really scared of the blob.
0: The 80s version of the blob is pretty fucking
2: scary. I've seen some shots of it, and it does look pretty scary. I've seen it. It's though. pretty
0: good. I'm, pro- I'm probably Ooh, picking it at some point. yeah. If you don't, I might. Um, speaking of, uh, it is my pick next week. And, uh, you know, now that we're past the milestone of the big hundo, I'm going to go Tease, back. I,
2: I, I'm sorry I have to say it now, but Barbarella is not a horror movie. You can't pick Barbarella really yeah
0: all right well i guess in that case my little
2: pony adventure isn't either
0: you're really making me dig to the bottom of my bag here cleveland i don't appreciate this sorry man. but i guess if you're not gonna let me do barbarella or my little pony friendship is magic
2: thank you for getting it right uh
0: then I guess I'll just go back to quarantine theme and we'll talk about 28 days later. Oh, you know, nice. Not a much worse movie than Barbarella and My Little Pony Friendship is Magic, even though that's a television show. Wait, we're doing that <laughs> 7 days later? Yeah. But 28 days later. But 7 days later. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I've been on a big Alex Garland kick lately, and it's uh, quarantine uh, virus infection themed. So uh, and I think 28, 28 Days Later is a pretty good movie. So we'll talk about it next week. <laughs> a ringing endorsement to come back and check back in with us. Well, shit, that'll bring our 100th episode to a close. I can't believe it's been a hundred episodes already, and hopefully we'll make it to a hundred more. But no promises. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you like the show and uh, want to show some appreciation for a hundred episodes of us doing this dumb shit, then uh, go on to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five star rating and a nice review. We would really appreciate that, and it would make all hundred and really 125 or so of these episodes worth it. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at PodPeoplePod and at letterbox.com slash podpeoplepod where you can see a list of all the movies we talked about with our average ratings and links to those episodes. And you can check out our list of perfect Golden Pod films, which Alien has, of course, joined the ranks of. So go see what other movies we think are uh perfect films. You can follow me on Twitter at DeepStateOzzy, where I am still quarantine posting.
2: I'm on Twitter at Mr. Sheets, and I'm occasionally tweeting for Light Arc Studio as we further our next big release for It Stairs Back. Go and check it out. We're on Steam in Early Access, and check us out for lots of delicious, fun, RTS spooky times. Uh, We cannot promise you uh, another hundred episodes, though maybe, but what I can definitely promise you is that I will be working on things until I'm dead. So uh, go and check out some of my work on ArtStation. Just check out uh, Cleveland Mosier and look at some cool, spooky, and also not spooky, paintings. I have some fun ones too sometimes. Uh, I'm not all spooky just uh, mostly sometimes. spooky yeah yeah uh
0: are you still taking commissions
2: maybe uh hit me up uh let's let's uh let's let's collaborate on something uh oh viewer shoot me an email <laughs> let's uh let's
0: let's make smart all right well thank you for helping us stay on course for a hundred episodes As much as I can say that this is on course, I'm going to go rub myself down with petroleum jelly and slither up into the air ducts where I make my home. Good night!